0: Thanks, David. That's so good. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's good to see you all this morning. You all look very great. It's uh, It's been a lonely few months when you only have as many people in the building as you could fit in a compact vehicle that's in this big building. It's very lonely. Yeah. And uh, we missed you and miss you. And the plan is, I think, if the government... Confirms their tentative plan is that we should be able to have about 120 people in here, um, stacked one on top of the other in the first three rows. Just kidding. So we're going to keep trying to adapt, and I want to thank everyone for their patience as well, because you know we find out what the plans are for the church at the exact same time everybody else does. It's really interesting. You know, we we see the Facebook page sometimes even after everyone else has seen. What the latest change is going to be so sometimes there's been like one day to respond or three days to respond and so it's been a bit wild especially because um, running an organization like this all of us are depending on the routine of it a bit like the life of the church kind of depends on 10, 10 a.m sundays that you don't have to find out every single week when you're going to be showing up to this thing, we all depend on it, right? Imagine if every week we're like, well, Sunday's going to be Saturday at 7 p.m. You just, ah, oh, you know, I already booked plans. So it's been a bit chaotic for a part of all of our lives that we depend on not being too chaotic. And so I'm really appreciative for everyone's patience, and we will get through this together, God willing, and trust that He's been working and we're growing through all of this stuff. Amen. I want to talk about um, forgiveness today. I'm going to read from the Lord's Prayer. The King Jesus said this. This is Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses please pray with me father we just come to you in the name of jesus and his shed blood on the cross which is our righteousness and our peace with you And through his resurrection from the dead and his lordship and his ascension to the throne, which is our hope and our power and our trust that our prayers reach the one who's able to do anything. God, would you do your kingdom coming this morning on our behalf? Would you touch all of our hearts? And I pray that everyone who hears my voice would powerfully be encountered by the living God. I pray that profound humility would mark our lives more and more as we see ourselves as forgiven sinners serving the Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right. Maybe you'd agree with me that the one people group in all the world that everyone feels like they have a huge right to hate would be the Nazis. The National Socialist Party, that reigned in Germany from sometime in the 30s through till 1945 when uh, their regime was bombed and shot and tanked to destruction and oblivion and then their leaders the ones that were alive still faced open international tribunal for a few years in the Nuremberg trials as what they had done was exposed and rightfully condemned by the rest of the world After the First World War, uh, Germany, which was not Nazi Germany at the time, felt, many of them, profoundly humiliated. They'd lost the war, and the allies that they'd fought against had uh, put on them reparations and restrictions. They were going to be forced to pay for all the damage of the war, because the leading countries of the world that fought in the world all went into catastrophic debt fighting this thing. In our current dollars, I'm sure, um, they were all trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in debt because they were having this long war of attrition where they sent all of their young men into the mud pits in Europe to go and die and be gassed and be shot and to die of disease. Um, And it stretched on for years and years without anything really being accomplished, except for everyone went into profound debt. And I think, if I'm not wrong, Britain just paid off their debt to America a few years ago. Let that sink in from a war that was finished in 1919. So the people who defeated Germany said, you're going to pay for this, literally, and you're now only allowed to have like a few hundred thousand people or 100,000 people as your army. And... Germany saw itself, broadly speaking, as a people group that were being profoundly mistreated by everyone around them. They were humiliated. Before the war, they had been the most advanced country in the world, and now they were impoverished and um, oppressed and just feeling very humiliated by the rest of the world. And the rest of the world might have said rightly so. Well, in the midst of that anger and frustration, you probably know the history. A a painter by the name of Adolf uh, Schnickengruber, who changed his name to Adolf Hitler, um, came onto the scene after a failed putsch, but preaching a message. And, And as I understand it, that message could be distilled into kind of three main facets. Number one, it wasn't our fault that we lost the war. We were betrayed, and we were betrayed by communists led by Jews. facet number one. That's why we're in this position. We were betrayed. We should have won the war, but we were betrayed. Facet number two, we are going to take control of Germany, and we are going to make things right. We're going to reestablish ourselves as the head of Europe and the dominant people of this area. And facet number three, the thing that they didn't really preach was they were going to eliminate the traitors in their midst, specifically the Jewish people. That was their their platform, and they took that platform and they hooked it in with the anger and the frustration and the oppression and the humiliation that this nation felt, and they they took over the country. And it wasn't like a unanimous takeover. There were lots of people who didn't trust these people and didn't want to participate with these people, but they had enough anger and enough violence, they ended up burning down the Reichstag, which was their capital, and they, they took over the country. And for a while there was lots of prosperity and they were rebuilding and they had this forced economy where everyone got jobs back. But the goal of the entire rebirth was revenge. And so Germany kept pushing past all these boundaries that the Allies had set. They took back over the Rhineland. They um, created the world's most advanced military at the time, um, taking all of the uh, factory and industrial advances that had been made to make the most and best tanks and airplanes possible at that time and to start mass-producing them like crazy. And they eventually started pushing out on their scheme to retake over land that was lost as well as retake over any land they thought rightly be- belonged to them or should belong to them, or room that they felt like they needed for growth. And it ended up with the, the beginnings of World War II, a war that, through allies and... Um, connections ended up really happening over the entire world. So that that people in the entire world were fighting in this war. All around the world. The sun never set on World War II while it was happening. And you can read lots about that if you want to. Now, one of the human stories that happened in this time is that the Nazis, um, as they were heading north to swing around to attack France from the north, which was their least defended border, They ended up taking over the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands was a Dutch woman named Corrie ten Boom, who was living with her dad Dad Casper and her sister Betsy. And their country was very quickly destroyed, and the military was destroyed, and they were taken over and occupied by Nazi Germany. And though I don't think they were publicizing it, the Nazis, people started to figure out what was going on, that Jewish people were being disappeared. And so she, as a Christian, and with other Christians, they they realized they did need to do something, and so her home became a place where they had a secret room built in the upstairs, and they had Jews living in their house secretly, and they had built this this safe room in one of their rooms so that if they ever got stormed by um, Nazi soldiers looking for Jews, the Jews would go and hide in this back room to protect their lives. And that eventually did happen. They were hiding Jews in their home secretly, kind of like the story of Anne Frank. And the Nazis, who were on the lookout for people who were doing this kind of stuff, hiding Jews, eventually discovered that this was a good place to raid. And they raided it, and they didn't find the Jews because of the hiding place room. But Corey and her dad and her sister were arrested and taken to prison. And if you've read the book, The Hiding Place, and if you haven't, I encourage you to read it. It's a profound story. While they're in prison, uh, Corey's dad dies. And her sister, too. Sorry. Anyhow, it's not like they're alone in prison. And Corey finds, Corey finds herself almost tagging along with Betsy while Betsy does ministry in prison. Corey's a bit more the melancholic, five-thinker type like me, and she's often frustrated and often discouraged. Betsy's one of the more cheerful, happy types, and she's often the one leading the way and trusting the Lord. The problem is that she's just more frail, and so she's sickly all the time. And so they're trying to minister to the people they're with, and they have all these really great stories about God's kindness to them. Somehow they managed to get a Bible, and they're doing these secret Bible studies. And, of course, they're being thrown in prison rooms with people who aren't Christians. And so they're able to minister to these other people in the room with them. Sometimes it's gypsies. Sometimes it's other people sharing Bibles. I think they were, like, tearing pages out of their Bibles so that everyone could have a few pages of the Gospels of the Bible that was smuggled into them. uh, Corey tells a story about... Somewhere along the lines, they get this little vial of, um, I think it would be like vitamin drops or something like this, like uh, Vegemite. I don't even know. (laughs) That's disgusting. But it's this vitamin drop. And of course, they're in prison. They actually end up at the Ravensburg concentration camp. And so they're not being fed a lot, and they're being forced to do work every day. And so they have this vita- little jar of vitamin drops, and every day they're giving everybody in the camp a drop of vitamins to go with their food. And this little bottle that lasts for like weeks and weeks and months, and every time they're just like, okay, God, let's see if there's some more drops left in here. And they give people these drops of this vitamin, and they have their own Elijah story of this bottle that won't run out of stuff as they're trying to just keep people healthy And they have all these really interesting um, stories of God's provision. God allows for the camp to this women's prison that they're in to be infested with mites so that they're often being bit by bit bed bugs or bit during the day. Corey's really frustrated with these mites. But they soon realize that because their their bed house is contaminated with mites, um, the prison guards don't want to come in. And so the most they'll ever do is just come to the door and yell at people to come out, but they won't come in, which leaves them free to have Bible studies and pray for each other and quietly worship because these mites are infesting the place. And so they have all these stories of God's kindness to them while they go through this. But Betsy eventually does get sick and die. And so when, when Cory is finally liberated, um, she's pretty much, like, lost everything. Except for the Lord. And the Lord... Uh, It was so crazy. Betsy had had this dream of taking a house, and it was was like a vision from God of a house that had been spared the devastations in the war and converting it to a place where people could recover from the trauma of the war. And it totally happened. And through one thing and another, and I don't know all the details, Corey ends up actually being a world-traveling evangelist And she only died very recently, but she was traveling the entire world telling her story and calling people to Jesus, calling Jews, calling Americans. um, She's in North Korea for a while with missionaries there, traveling the world, telling people about God's faithfulness in the the war, calling people to faith in Jesus. And there's this one story, it's near the end of her book, The Hiding Place. She's in Germany. I think it's Germany. um, Preaching Jesus to the survivors of of the war and after she come after she's having kind of like the prayer time ministry time and someone comes up to her to kind of and, and it turns out it's a Nazi prison guard and she recognizes him Maybe you can cut that section out of the video. Okay, she recognizes him as one of the guards. In an incident, if my memory serves me, where Betsy was being beaten for not working hard enough by one of the female guards of the prison, but the guy was there watching it happen. And she recognizes him, and he says something to her, something like, "Isn't God amazing that He could forgive something like someone like me too?" And he doesn't know that she's one of the, his ex-prisoners. And he kind of reaches out his hand to shake her hand. Isn't it amazing that God could have grace on someone like me? And she's frozen. Like, can you even begin to imagine the, all the waves of trauma that would come over you to recognize a face from some of the worst days of your life right there? And you've just preached to him the grace of Jesus Christ. And she said, I, I couldn't shake his hand for a second. But then I just forced myself to. And she said, when I touched him, I felt like electricity was going through my whole body. And she managed to embrace this guy in grace and forgiveness. The impossible power of Forgiveness one of the things that just been hitting me as i've been thinking about that story is because we've seen like schindler's list and all the movies and stuff we hate every nazi and rightfully so but there's one waiting for us in heaven who's our brother Who's been forgiven with spilled Jewish blood on the cross because God forgives completely and totally and scandalously and offensively. God forgives. God forgives. And this God of the Bible is such a forgiving God that he even says to us, if you won't forgive the people who transgress against you, I won't forgive you either. Because the only reason any of us are still here is because God forgives. The only reason any of us have anything good come to us in life is because God is willing to forgive Every kindness that every Christian in all of history will ever receive only comes to us because God forgives. And so He says, You have to forgive too. Why is forgiveness so hard? It is hard. Isn't it hard? If forgiveness weren't hard, we'd all do it all the time. There'd be nothing left to forgive. Half the time we need to be forgiven is because somebody else wasn't forgiving. Forgiveness is hard. Why is it so hard? Well, in in there's two accounts of the Lord's prayers in the Bible. Did you ever notice that? There's one in Matthew and there's one in Luke. And it's interesting because the, the best documents disagree on what Jesus taught people to pray which is good because Jesus taught people to pray different times so we could have used different words but one time it says we forgive would you in the prayer it says god would you forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and the other one it says would you forgive our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors and forgiveness is hard because The wrongs that we suffer in this life, number one, feel like injustices. They feel like trespasses. They feel like legal trespasses. And number two, when wrong things happen to us, we feel like we have lost. And now somebody else is indebted to us to make things better. We've been robbed. That's why forgiveness is so hard, I think. Just just barely, just looking at the Lord's Prayer. When we're wrong, number one, that thing inside of us that wants justice that thing inside of us that knows our rights the thing that inside of us that knows right and wrong and knows what's fair we we think our our fairness ometer is broken by sin so it always seems to be like what's fair advantages me more than it does you what's fair always works out to my advantage more than it does to you some things i do that, that are the same things that i wouldn't like someone to do to me are fair if i do it to somebody else like we're we're sinners we're broken. We're being fixed, we are forgiven, we're children of God, but we're not all the way fixed yet. But that part side of us that wants justice and understands fairness, when we're wrong, that part starts going off. It's like a smoke alarm in our soul that is just screaming, not right, not right, not right, not right. And the idea of just sitting there while the smoke alarm in your soul goes screaming off is an impossibility. See, somebody needs to turn that thing off. Maybe if I just punch that guy in the face, it will go away. And the other thing is that sense of indebtedness. When we're wronged, this picture of how we think life should go, this picture of how what we think we're owed or what we think we have, when we're wronged, we're robbed of something. It could be a real robbing. Someone could destroy something we own, or we could be hurt so that the health or pain-free existence that we expect is being taken from us from by somebody, or it could even just be this like a time of bad emotions where we want to be happy, but somebody posts something on Facebook and now we're not happy. <laughs> they owe us, and well, we're going to say something to get them to apologize, and they're going to change their mind because they have said something I don't like. We're going to do it and they pay pay you owe me, pay the debt. And we go through life daily, if not hourly, having experiences with people where we could be feeling like we've been trespassed and an injustice has come our way, or we've been robbed by somebody. We haven't got what we deserve. And if you're thinking, I feel like I'm in a sweet spot, should I start listing the list? How about your boss? been unjustified by your boss, been been not given all that you're owed. Because you're, you're worth more money than you get. Am I right? Am I right? They owe you a debt of what you haven't been given yet. Your parents. Your spouse. We just don't talk about it anymore. But it's all there, right? The injustice, the debt, the, the thinking. Maybe... Maybe this is your experience, it's not mine, but sometimes spouses can even like imagine ways that their spouses can change to make your life easier and then you tell them that they could change like that and they don't receive it very well. Selfish? Those are just small things. That's not like you've had your entire nation defeated by the most evil political regime that's existed in the last hundred years. And all your family die under their quote-unquote care. Forgiveness is hard because the wounds are real and the pains are real and the injustices are real. And, and at the same time, as broken people, we don't know how to handle this stuff well most of the time. But God calls us to forgive. He calls us to forgive without making a ton of exceptions. Because he's the forgiving God. As I think about this stuff, I think that there's kind of like two kinds of forgiveness that we need to get good at in life. The first kind is the main kind that we think about where, you know, you maybe have had a fight with somebody. And you can maybe go to them and say, you did this thing to me, but I forgive you. And you're hoping for peace and you're hoping for restoration. And you actually have a relationship with this person and you want to forgive and let them know, okay, I've canceled the debt against you. I've forgiven the trespass and the injustice. I'm letting, and maybe we can have some restored relationship here. That's one kind. That's a common kind and that's a necessary kind. And the other kind of forgiveness is one that I think we can get better at in life. And that's just the the idea of giving to God to deal with things that aren't our business in some ways. Because we can get hurt by things that don't even necessarily have anything to do with us. Just watch the news. You can get hurt by things that happen. You can be offended at things that happen. You can be mad at people who you've never met because you see a video online. And you can wish that they could die. And, and in some sense, you might be completely right. And yet, it has nothing to do with us in one sense but you still need to forgive them for the impact that they've had on you. I think about Romans 12, where the Apostle Paul, talking about this kind of stuff, says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the promise in this really challenging pas- passage is this. God knows how to take revenge. God knows how to display his wrath. God knows how to kill people. Amen? Okay, I haven't gotten an amen. Just to let you know, internet, no one said amen here. They don't know what to do with me asking for an amen there. You should say amen. But this is the truth. God knows how to kill people. When people are doing wrong, God knows how to kill them and he can kill them by the tens of thousands if he wants to. Was it the Babylonians who came up to Israel at that time of Hezekiah? And they're like, we're going to kill you just like we killed everybody else. Hezekiah pulls all their threats before the Lord and he says, save us. And God strikes them with an angel and a 100,000 of them die in a night. Because they're proud and they think, your God can't save you. They said to the God of Israel, you can't save Jerusalem. And Hezekiah says, God, they say you can't save us. And God says, now I'm mad. Enjoy your bubonic plague, Nineveh or whoever it was. And they pooped themselves to death. Christian, God knows how to kill people when he wants to. And then he says to us, so that's not your job. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And when we're feeling hurt and when we're feeling angry, we forget that there is such a place as hell. That God is going to send everybody who is not saved to. And there is nothing a human being can do to another human being in this life that is as terrifying and brutal and just and holy as hell. And when you're feeling ripped off about what's going on in the world, you need to remember that hell is real and they are going there unless they get saved. What can we add to the wrath of God that will make anything better? A hundred years from now, every sinner will be in hell. Be satisfied. Be satisfied with your complaints about the world. Be satisfied with your grievances of the news. Be satisfied. A hundred years from now, every single sinner will be in hell before the holy wrath of the living God who hates sin more than any of us ever could and takes every single injustice personally. Do you remember what what Jesus said to Paul on the Damascus Road? When Paul was going to Damascus to arrest Christians and kill them, Jesus said to them, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus takes personally every single injustice in the world, especially the injustice suffered by Christians. He says, me, when you're treated wrong. He says, me, when you're misunderstood. He says, me, when you're treated badly. Why do you treat me this way? God takes all sin personally. Remember what King David said when he was convicted about what he'd done to Bathsheba and what he'd done to his friend Uriah. He said, God, it's against you and you alone that I've sinned. And you know what God said? That's right. Every single sin is against the living God and he will repay in such a way that we would be terrified... Even if our worst enemies would go there. No kindness. No mercy. No compassion. No end. The justice of God complete. And without any fault. There should be a part of our heart that trembles when we see sinners sinning. Because they will not get away with it. And what they are purchasing for themselves in all eternity is frightening. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. But give room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. And the only hope any of us have in this world is that this pure and holy God who has a list, if he wants to, of all of our wrongs, hold against us if he wants to this god who knows the secret places of our hearts and even our most tiniest thoughts of sins are an injustice and are a debt in his sight the things that even we wish we could do but we can't do because we can't afford it or we're too afraid are unholy and worthy of judgment in his sight and he knows it this god if he does not forgive we're lost And there's no manipulating. And there's no one to stand in the way if he doesn't forgive. <sighs> but he does forgive. And he's, he came himself and his son to his enemies to bring forgiveness. And he came as a man, so he took on to himself a mind and a body and flesh that could scream out in pain when it got whipped, and scream out in injustice when he got nailed to the cross. And how did he go to the cross? Cursing and blaming and attacking? No, he nailed to the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of man was that? I don't know anybody who could do that or even would do that. Maybe I just don't know you well enough yet, and you would do that. But that is not normal. And so the God of the universe says, because every single minute of every single person's day is bought by forgiveness right now, he says, you need to forgive. What happens when we embrace unforgiveness? At the very least, we tend to uh, foster in our hearts a bitter spirit, where we get pessimistic and angry and easily offended. But when we have unforgiveness, we welcome often into our lives cycles of grudges. Have you ever heard about the Hatfields and McCoys before? No? Somebody? Somebody? It's it's terrible and good. Yeah, thank you. I told you about it yesterday, so that's why you know about it. Gold star. There's these two American families, extended families. So think like Mennonite extended family gathering family, where all 500 of you show up for Shimon Fat, And then Hatfield and the McCoys, they lived uh, end of the 1800s, so right after the American Civil War. And one of them got killed coming back from the American Civil War, by a group of armed guards Where there was some Hatfields amongst them I think the McCoys were the first to die And there had been some bad blood between them Because one of them had sued the other one over a parcel of land that they'd lost And they are both rum runners or something like this But anyhow, they're bad dudes And apparently all these Hatfields and McCoys were like Scottish people That sounds about right, right? Scott-Irish people who had moved to the States During the worst part of Scott-Irish poverty in Britain and these people were really known for being vengeful and carrying their own guns just like imagine the Beverly Hillbillies but angry and so in revenge for the McCoy killing the Hatfields found the McCoys found some Hatfields who were drunk and Uh, beat up the guy and stabbed him 50 times and shot him. And so in revenge for that, the Hatfields got a bit of a posse and found some McCoys and killed them. And in the meantime, one of the Hatfield guys seduced one of the McCoy daughters and she ran away with him and she came back when she was pregnant and then they came out and caught the guy who had impregnated her and brought him back and were going to kill him. But she ran away from the house and went and found some Hatfields and so they came and got the Hatfield boy out of that house and saved him and so she was left with him. And so the the Hatfield that impregnated the McCoy girl repaid all of her kindness by seducing her cousin and marrying her instead and so the McCoys are all ticked off about all this childhood shenanigans and so they go back after this guy and eventually what happens is I think it's the Hatfield leader's house gets burned down and two of his kids die in it and his wife gets beaten up and he runs off with the rest of the kids who all get frostbite because it's the middle of the night and eventually the federal government has to get involved and decides that a bunch of the McCoys need to get hanged and And you know what? Both sides thought the other side started it as they went to go and kill the next person. Who knows where it actually started, but that's what feuds are. It's cycles of revenge, and everybody has a list of what the other side's done. And there's no forgiveness. And that's, that's our life. Without forgiveness, forgiveness says to the feud, it stops here. Because I say so. Interestingly, the Hatfields and McCoys a few years ago had a, their descendants had like an official truce when they got together, signed a piece of paper saying the feud is dead. And the Hatfield and McCoy um, grudge grudge thing has become this like money maker amusement park that you can go to and see some backwood banjo stuff and go visit their homes and. So, welcome to America, where everything turns a dollar eventually. But the scariest thing for me is the idea of being opposed by God because of unforgiveness. When Jesus says, if you don't forgive those who trespass against you, neither will your father forgive your trespasses, that that line is just one of the scariest lines in Scripture. That that dad's not going to forgive you. And I don't totally know what that means. Some people argue, does that mean you're not saved anymore because you're only saved if you're forgiven or does it mean something else? And you know what? I don't know. Are you willing to risk finding out? At the very least, I know that every Christian wants to live under the blessing of God knowing that the Father says, I'm for you and I'm going to help you. And I would think that The unforgiveness at least would say the Father saying, I'm not with you until we sort this out. I'm not with you in your work. I'm not with you in your marriage. I'm not with you with your kids. I'm not with you in your ministry. I'm not with you in your church. You're on your own. It's just the flesh and human effort until you sort this out because this is more important than anything else you're doing. Christian, can we hear the importance of this before the Father. A Christian can waste their life with unforgiveness. And God is not going to baby us about this. He's not going to say, poor baby, in your case, I'm going to let you have unforgiveness because you had it really bad. No, he's going to say, Jesus had it really bad so you could be forgiven and he is everything you need to forgive. It will be hard. It will hurt. You might feel like it's not worth it. It may be scary. It may bring up the past. It may feel like you're letting go of a debt that you need to get repaid for in order to be okay. It may feel like many things, but this needs to happen. And Jesus is more than you need in this life. Jesus can raise you up. Jesus can provide for you. Jesus can make you a millionaire overnight. Anybody notice that? It, it, give Jesus your debts. This is one of the things about forgiveness, is it isn't just a human-to-human tra- transaction. It's about the Lord. You can give Jesus our, your debts. Jesus, this person owes me this thing, but I don't want to deal with it. I give it to you. And he can go be your debt collector. and He can go break the kneecaps of the person he wants payment from if he wants to. And he can, he can pay you back for it. Jesus will pay you back. And this is what unforgiveness... I can't handle what happened with my parents. Jesus, I give it to you. I'll I'll pay you back. Jesus, I can't handle what happened in my childhood. I can't. I can't. I'm so angry. I can't handle it. I give it to you. I will pay you back. Thank you. I will pay you back. I'll be what you need. I can touch your heart. Let's work this through. And this is one area of Christian faith where we need to have great faith that no matter what happens, Jesus can pay us back. I'm going to end with this because i care about freedom and the call to forgiveness can feel like a call to a prison sentence can't it i'm just going to be stuck with what happened the reality is the call to forgiveness is the call to the greatest freedom you will ever know someone who bears no grudges is the freest person someone who this is what unforgiveness does is it says to the past you own my future and it's like this it's like anybody ever send letters i know we don't do that anymore we send emails so this won't work sorry millennials but in the old days they used to send letters you'd write on this stuff called paper dead trees it's like tree corpses so you take trees kill them smash them flat and you write on their dead bodies things that you think are important for other people fold it up in another tree corpse and put a stamp on there so that people will handle these tree dead bodies and move them around. But it takes a while. And unforgiveness is like this. You go to the mail, the post office right there, you open up your box, and there's a letter from yourself. And you open it up and it says, don't forget that this bad thing happened to you. And you say, you're right, I I, I can't forget. And then you write the last bad thing that happened to you on there. And you seal it up and you put in a new letter. And you put it back in the mail. Then you go to the post office the next day and you open up your mailbox and there's a few letters in there. And here's a good letter and it's got a good thing. Hey, something nice happened today. And then you got another thing and it's a bill. And then you open up another letter and, you, and oh, it's your unforgiveness letter. And you open it up and it says, don't forget this bad thing that happened to you and this bad thing that happened to you. You're like, you're right, that's terrible. None of the rest of this stuff really counts. Then you write the bad thing that happened to you today. I got a really bad bill, and I don't know what to do about it. And you seal it up, you put it in an envelope, and you put it back in the post office box. Then you go to the mailbox the next day, and you open it up, and hey, you open up the letter. It's a sunny day, and it's my birthday. And then you open that one. That's great. And then you open up the next one. Oh, you know, you did well at school. Your school decided you passed two months before school was over. You do whatever you want. You know, you go, wah, ha, ha, you know, You're just like, uh, call of duty high score. Here we come. And you open up that one. and But then the last letter in the mailbox, don't forget all this bad stuff that happened to you. This happened, and this happened. Then there's the bill, and you're like, that's right. And then also this bad. That thing that happened, you write it down, fold it up, you put it in a letter, and then you put it back in the mailbox. And then you go to the post office the next day and you open it up. And then the next thing, oh my goodness, you got a promotion at your work and, and these are and all these things. And you're married and blah blah blah, and you're pulling out all these letters of all these blessings from the Lord. And and then there's that letter that's there again. You open it up and it says, Don't forget these bad things that happened, and then this happened, and this and you write and then you put the next thing that's on there. I can't stop opening up this really bad letter. And you fold it back up and you put it in the, po- in the mail and you put it in the mailbox and away you go. And then you come back the next day. Now you don't even care anymore those other letters that are in there. You just go to the bad one, you pull it out and you just like the, the stupid letter and you read it, you read all the stuff that's going on here again. And the only way to really break it is to put the letter back in the envelope and address, send to Jesus, care of heaven. so that you can come back the next day and it's not there in your mailbox. And that's what unforgiveness does. It frees up your future. Or sorry, that's what forgiveness does with the Lord. It brings you to a place where the Lord is the God of your future. And this has happened for me. This is a weird thing I've been processing through here. Thanks for your patience. I'm almost done. I've even seen in my heart as I've been thinking about many things, is I've had seasons of worrying about what people will do in the future. Have you ever felt that way? If this happens, what will this person do? If this happens, what will that person do? What if this person does this? What if this person does this thing again? What if my family member does this again? What if my community does this thing? What if, what if, what if? And you've got all this fear about what people can do in the future what if it's the a millionth time what if it's the 70 times seven that jesus talks about and i've just realized that i can decide today that no matter what that person might do in the future i know i'm going to forgive them and so i'm free that's the plan what if someone does something terrible well then i'm going to forgive them that's my future It's going to be a future filled with the future forgiveness of Jesus. What if I sin in the future? Jesus will forgive me. Have you ever been comforted by the thought that even if tomorrow is the worst sin day of your life, King Jesus' blood is already there waiting for you? And Dave's talking about a salvation that is based on faith by grace and not by works. What that means is that your future is owned by the blood of Jesus. And we can live with that too. A future filled with the promise of forgiveness for what might come our way. Amen? Thank you for your patience. Forgive me if this was too long. You saw that one coming. But I want to call us. I, I would be surprised if many of us haven't picked up new debts and transgressions in the last little bit. Even with just stuff that's happened in the news, I I have to fight regularly to not get a bitter spirit about multiple things that are happening. Forgive. If it's not your job, give it to God to take care of. He can take care of those people. He can take care of those situations. If they're sinning and I'm not personally called to do something about it, God, you're God. And maybe God will call me to something particular. I'm open. But I don't want to decide that it's my job to fix the world because I'm angry and in unforgiveness. Because God says, actually, that's his job first. First. And he calls his church to minister grace. So, Father, would you search our hearts? Lord, as Christians, as we read the Bible and as we get a better sense of right and wrong, very often it actually just leads us to be more judgmental and unforgiving. Because we know what's right now. God said this is right and this is wrong and we can be more judgmental and more unforgiving. Father, would you forgive me? That is definitely my tendency. Father, I pray that Calvary Chapel would take a big inhalation of the forgiveness of God and that we would begin to relate to the peoples of the world more and more by grace and with the determination to forgive everything before it even happens. Amen.